Hi, my name is Bruce McDonald. Hi, I'm Josie Schaefer. And welcome to Academics of PA. This week we have with us Stephen Kleinschmidt uh, as our guest from the University of Illinois at Chicago. So, Stephen, welcome. Oh, thank you. It's nice to be here. Maybe kind of a good place to start would be to have you tell us a little bit about who you are, and we can then go into, you know, why we invited you on. Okay. Uh, I guess for the, uh, those who are listening in, um, um, I'm currently the Director of Program Development and Engagement at uh, the University of Illinois Chicago, but I guess a lot of people in PA know me from uh, I, essentially two initiatives that I worked to create when I was uh, er, a little bit earlier in my career. First is the Midwest Public Affairs Conference. It's an ASPA-affiliated uh, uh, regional conference in the vein of SACOPA and NACOPA, the, the other sort of regional conferences and whatnot. Uh, and also our affiliated journal, the Journal of Public and Nonprofit Affairs, which uh, Bruce has taken had taken the helm of and did a great job of building up and everything like that. So between the conference and Open Access Journal, I guess it's kind of a, an unusual feat for somebody who is an assistant professor to do. I think that's absolutely true and everybody's favorite journal and conference as far as I'm concerned. Can we say suck up on here? I don't know. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> okay. Well, so... I'm very interested in how an assistant professor decides to do something sort of unusual and inconsistent with sort of the normal trajectory of an academic. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, I guess it, it was it was a risk. I'll say that that, um, you know, that doing things like this are always uh, uh, a risk and put yourself out there because it is unusual and it does detract from kind of the normal academic path, but I, I, I wouldn't consider myself a normal academic. And <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. wait, I'm going to, I'm, I do want to stop you. Cause I think, so I, I think one of the audiences for this podcast is students that also want to be academics of public administration. So just to clarify for them, like what's risky about it? Why is it not typical for an academic to want to, start a com- you know start a group and uh, I, I be think engaged it, yeah it's definitely something that lends itself to sort of the post tenure stage is that when you have a bit less you know you have a bit more discretion and you're there's a little bit more permanence in sort of your career and stuff like that uh, that generally these sort of things when you look at the people who have who have started them in the past have either been uh, I think they've all been full professors if I'm not uh, incorrect so um, so yeah I think that particularly for those who are want to be on the traditional tenure track where you're kind of you're in a in this age of declining tenure track lines is that you're in a essentially a foot race with other people to get out as many pubs as you can to to uh really focus on a lot of things that are you know the that your incentive stream is much more directly towards research and and grantsmanship and uh and for those at teaching institutions teaching then and on these type of things and um i think that that even even if you do produce on all those fronts and whatnot there's still a perception that you could even be doing more so i would i'd say that innovate and do great things and whatnot but at the same time just be cognizant that there is some risk towards just being the perception that that you could be doing more so you started it when you were at IPFW, which Indiana University, Purdue University, Fort Wayne, mm-hmm. I think is what it actually stands for. Sure. 
because you were in your first or second year there as a brand new assistant. Yeah, I was I was in my second year. I, I guess the kind of backstory is this is that uh, my second year at IPFW that I went to the international conference on e-governance with one of my colleagues uh, from IPFW, and we were sitting around at a... Wait, shameless plug, University of Nebraska at Omaha is putting in a bid to host that conference in a few years. Oh, nice. (laughs) Oh, that is a both rather shameless plug and an interesting development. So so, uh, we were were at IceGov in Albany, and... um, I was sitting at a reception with uh, one of my colleagues and we were talking about, we had both been to Nacopa and Sacopa and just an innocuous comment where um, he said, uh, why isn't there a Mwakopa or, you know, like a Midwest conference of public administration. And I, I agreed. I, I kind of got that idea. Why isn't there one? And, and if, if, it, if not me, then who? And it just, I, it's an idea that I couldn't let go. And uh, yeah, I was lucky to have a department that was supportive of it when I brought the idea to when I brought the idea to the administration that they had grant funding and and uh, were willing to support it, and that's that's how it began. So you come up with the idea kind of as one of those harebrained side comments, as I think most great ideas start. Uh, like this podcast, maybe. <laughs> oh, absolutely, definitely like this podcast. So you, you have the idea for you know why isn't there one? How do you go then from that there isn't one to saying, here's what it's going to be, here's how it's kind of structured? I guess the um, the process is is that um, I, I got a grant for it that it was sold kind of to one of our assistant deans or, or assistant vice chancellor as being sort of something to help promote the program that you know, they had identified the right uh, pot of money for it. But I think my, my experience with the conference was pretty rooted in just going to, I, I went to an, a fairly large number of conferences, even as a doctoral student and a junior assistant professor. I'd, I'd, I'd done like, I don't know, probably about 15 before, you know, before even impact was started. And I, I kind of got this good mix of experiences, some that were very, academic and very structured to ones that were uh, much more loosely so and i just kind of got the idea of let's take the 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 best part of all the conferences that i've that i've been to and kind of cobble those together and try to minimize those things is that you know to make them accessible and a place for doctoral students to be able to present but a place where that serious research could be presented and but also just to and I think this is something that underlies a lot of the ethos of the, the conference is that let's, let's, why, why do we mourn this experience, uh, you know, that conferences can be, they can be very long, they can be f- foreboding, they can be standoffish and stuff like that, you know, to, to kind of make it fun. But uh, I, I felt sort of an obligation to make this a conference where the things that needed to be discussed needed to be discussed that, um, that to, to, to borrow ideas from other fields and, and other conferences. And, um, and also we had a great help from Mark Holzer at Rutgers, uh, who's at Rutgers Newark at the time in, in, in the COPA is that um, we knew that we couldn't duplicate this 
the, the, the very established high, you know, like the conference experience where you have a, you know, several hundred dollar, like, you know, four or $500 registration fee. And they were going to able, you know, to pull down big sponsors that were, you know, having platinum and diamond sponsorship and stuff like that. And we found just the model of, of being able to meet in university universities, uh, conference facilities and student centers that let's spend money on the, you know, the social experience on the, you know, on a lot of the, the, the stuff you have, but, uh, there's not a whole lot of difference between meeting in a, you know, a, you know, a lot of universities have very nice student centers that operate at a very good deal compared to like a hotel. So my idea was, you know, essentially who cares where the the rooms and the presentations are and stuff like that. We don't need to to spend an inordinate sum to do this. That we can kind of do it um, on the on the cheap and then spend the money on the things that we think are are, are priorities for the organization rather than on 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 sort of hotel type things. So, comment on like two things that you said. So, right as an outsider looking at the conference and coming for the first time, I think. I think at Omaha, in Omaha was the first time I came. It does have this sort of useful vibe. Like, let's, you know, it's not um, stodgy. It's not stiff. It, it seems interactive and comfortable and that there truly is time to engage in conversation versus um, present one question, walk out of the room, get lost in a crowd and try to find your next room. So I think what you're saying about it has it actually feels that way when you go to the conference, which is why I think MPAC is the best conference. The other one, I don't know why everyone doesn't do it at universities, because what a cool experience to come onto campuses and actually see campuses and the resources that they do have and make available. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think like to, to answer that latter point is that I, I think you really wanted, uh, you know, I, I like the Nacopa model, uh, at least uh, how I guess kind of Nacopa started off, uh, or at least I experienced it going to like John Jay College and George Mason and whatnot. Is that yeah? Let's let's highlight let's highlight the, the these programs, give them a moment to shine, and to be able to put them front and center as the host of this conference and get to see different cities and and programs and get to see the capacity and just get to know the field. And the people within it a little better, and I think that's that's something that that's more personal and a better experience at a at this kind of at a level than say in a, in a hotel downtown or something like that. Right. I'll pick on Sacopa a little bit. You know, the idea of Sacopa, which is the Southeastern Conference of Public Administration, has been around since mid '70s or so. Has been that it was the ASPA regional chapters rather than the schools that actually hosted. Which is why they've never hosted it at a on a school campus. It's only really been the last couple of years that that model has changed to actually where programs and departments host instead. Oh, yeah. But because of that chapter focus, even though they've moved away from the chapters doing it, they still haven't come back to the idea that it can be someplace besides a hotel in the city. Yeah, and and it's it's you know to the credit. Uh, I mean, all the 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 ASPA conferences are well, Sacopa is I believe the only one that's still in its original incarnation that that mm-hmm. nacopa was the former northeast regional conference the aspen northeast regional conference which uh was I believe uh founded by mark holzer in 19 around 1980 and then he refounded in 2009 or 2008 uh and and impact is kind of the next iteration of what used to be 
called the uh, the ASPA, I believe it was ASPA Region 6 Midwest Regional Conference. So yeah, that these things were originally kind of run more by this by the sections and by the organization itself, whereas they've transitioned into being autonomous entities that are uh, organized under sort of the collective umbrella of, of ASPA and yeah, I, I'm I'm glad they supported this. Uh, I'm glad that they were <laughs> to help us uh, uh, use their networks. So, did you know about the old incarnation before you started the new one? I uh, can't say that I did. Um, <laughs> I, I've I'd been searching around online and trying to do a deep document search, and and I guess the most recent thing I could find is that perhaps, and this was this was all after the fact too, um, that there was a, I believe the the last conference was in Sioux City, South Dakota in 2004 uh, and then there's a lot there's a lot more documentation of kind of uh, earlier conferences and I had rec- I have records going back to about 78 East Lansing Michigan uh, Columbus Ohio Indianapolis I believe there's a Chicago or two in there I think there was a Madison uh, so so yeah that there was a time this was active and it was something that that people really look forward to and uh, the story of, of how it kind of uh, came to an end is not something that I've been able to ascertain as of yet but I'm, I'm still working to try to track down well let's not pick on Sioux City South Dakota really <laughs> it's not their fault oh I don't know it's like sometimes it, it just uh, and it's important part of even designing this conference is that um, you really got to think about the about the continuity, um, and I know that uh, some conferences that they go from a year to year kind of structure where everybody turns over the leadership every year and and it, and it goes to host program. For me, it was important to have continuity to plan the continuity that like usually, you know, that we know that we're having the conference in Indy this year, but it's like I knew that we were having in the conference in Indy slightly after you know we we announced the call for proposals for last year's event in Chicago and stuff like that. So I usually know like a year and a half, year and three quarters out the continuity plan of, of who's going to host it, who's going to be responsible, but also the leadership team for us who's going to help do that. And I think that's something that, you know, I'd, I'd say for a lot of anybody listening here, especially students and academics who uh, think about doing things, it's like really think about the continuity and that, uh, a lot of new organizations always have that, you know, that that founder organizer who is really an, an organizing team that are willing to put in a tremendous amount of work to get the things off the ground and stuff like that. But keeping that kind of inertia going is, is, is something that a lot of organizations that uh, could could unwind you eventually. So I want to go back to you as a risk taker. You start a new conference you're clearly interested, and maybe you can talk more about how I know that you're interested in engaged work. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to be interested in engaged work, at why it's important, and if it's been easy or not to make that a part of your career? Yeah, I guess so. Um, uh, so I'd say that it's it's always been a bit of a challenge. I think that in the past, particularly in the, in the good old days of, of academia, where uh, I was told that in like previous decades, that tenure meant three articles and a handshake. It seemed that... Can I get that deal? I know, right? <laughs> I know, yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that, uh, yeah, the, the, the three tenure and a handshake, that, there was a, there was a, and I try to think back to what article I saw this, but it's, it seems in the past, there was a much more engaged ethos in public administration as a whole that, um, that 
service not only was valued, but it was expected. Um, and I think part of it was, you know, that the kind of relaxed publication standards uh, in, in, in sort of previous decades and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, this is sort of pre-technology and all the kind of productivity indicators and stuff like that is that uh, that there used to be this expectation, and I've, I've seen it in several cities and talking with old alumni of, of, of programs that, yeah, like what happened? It's like back in the, the 80s, your faculty were at every city city planning meeting or, or, or board of commissioner meetings or major nonprofit events and stuff like that. And I, I really kind of, and I was honestly, when I got into academia, I thought that that was kind of more the balance that I was looking for is that I I do value research and I think it's important, but I think that there's a lot of value to be said that good ideas are only ideas until they're implemented and that some of these type of ideas will never be implemented implemented without sort of the agency of the of the the, the person who's proposing it who can champion it and has the capacity to do it. Uh so I think in some respects, that's it, it's an extension of kind of my background. You know, I'd always been in the scouts. I did volunteered. I was in the army, although that's kind of an off you know offshoot of that thing. But I always felt like, yeah, I just always felt like good ideas need implementation. And I think uh, there's even another tangent we can go off in a, in a little while. Is that uh, I think that in this new age of information technology, that being able to use technology be it social media presence, email lists, sort of advanced like tools and scripting and type of like, stuff like that allows somebody to duplicate the capacity of a much larger entity uh, if, if they're knowledgeable about this. And, and that was something that's fundamentally different about impact than other conferences. Uh, I was a second year assistant professor at a small school in eastern, uh, you know, northeastern Indiana. How am I going to contact the, you know, the tremendous all those people out there who need to hear about this event and make sure that they come that, you know, in the past, those things have been physical mailers and social connections and just somebody's name draw. But when you don't have all that, you either have that money, that time or that capacity that using digital tools as a way to, as a force multiplier is something that, that is fundamentally different in our kind of history than, than, uh, than other organizations. Cool point. Glad you brought up some of your knowledge and research related to social media. Do you want to talk about that more too? Sure. Yeah, just to kind of give you an idea of some of the stuff that that I've like kind of the the shoe leather digital shoe leather approach that I brought to this organization. Like uh, it's kind of a story I've told. I believe I actually told this <laughs> the my my end of uh, term kind of speech last the last conference. But uh, I when I first started this thing out, I didn't know who's going to hear about it how the information was going to get out and stuff like that. So, so the first thing is I went on to, uh, I'd created a map of all the a Google map of all the NASPA member programs that, that still exist today. So I went to each individual Midwestern program website. You know, this is before I started reaching out to the practitioner community, but each of the MPA programs and, and NASPA member programs, and there was 57 of them. And I emailed the director of the program with the, 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 you know, here's a new thing that's going on sponsored by ASPA, a new conference and stuff like that. Please, could you please send your faculty? And the thing I did, I used analytics on, um, on my email to see essentially how many people had, uh, had seen that email. So I emailed 57 chairs, 13 of them opened the email, two of them actually 
forwarded it on to their other people. Wait, so, wait, say that, say that again. <laughs> okay, so uh, so the fifty-seven department chairs that I sent the emails out to, thirteen of them opened the email, and two of them actually sent it on to their faculty, and I saw more than one hit from uh, from that institution. So yeah, so that was a kind of point. It's like, well, I knew I'd hit. Uh, essentially a roadblock or you know more of a, of a bottleneck that if I'm really going to if I'm really going to get this thing to work I can't rely on if this was like 1990 or 1980 you send out a paper mailer to those same chairs or something like that if you get the similar response rate you see why you, you would you would take a really big name in PA or it would take a significant organizational connection to be able to get people to show up to this thing but I didn't have that. So I noticed, well, I'm, I need to get around this bottleneck. So what I did is that I, I used a program that had a script on it. I went back to those same 57 web pages. I went to their faculty resource page and I hit a button and it auto collected all the email addresses and added it to a document. And then I did it. I took about two hours going to all 57 programs and just collected something like 980 email addresses. Uh, and then I sent out that same email. And then with the analytics, I had like 650 opens in the, in the first two hours. I had like 1,400 over the, the next two days. And that's just kind of an example of one of the approaches I've taken, not only using analytics, but social media and and kind of force multiplier tools to, to not only, you know, to understand what are the things that are hamstringing the organization from growth or from, from getting its message out. And then um, I think most importantly, to use analytics or use other type of tools to, to understand how they're being used, where the, the things are coming from, how, you know, people are checking it and, you know, to give you sort of impact metrics. And when things aren't working, you know, they're not working and then you adjust. Well, you know, I'll give Stephen a kudos because I haven't actually told him. So I used to you know be involved with Impact you know a lot when I lived in the Midwest. You know came here and then in the fall, Sacopa's uh, board asked me to serve as the co-chair on the communications committee in part because they want to try and replicate what Impact does from the social media perspective. Oh wow! Right? How good that feels good. Oh yeah, that was quick. Well, if you look at the you know what Impact the network of you know who gets involved, you know just the fact that people who have gone in the past will sit there and swear up and down and preach you know the good word of impact you know above and beyond any other conference and then you compare that to Sacopa and Nicopa um, even the Aspen National Conference you know, there's very much a different kind of engaged community on people who now swear by it as being they'll be all of what they should be going to uh-huh. well I appreciate that and uh yeah I've noticed um as the years go by at being the one primary one who's kind of either done the you know in the first few years I actually did all the <laughs> almost all the uh submission reviews but um but but in creating the program the last five years i've seen sort of a a a subset of attendees but this loyal group of people who've come year after year and just really like the the structure and like the content and um yeah i i try to have important conversations i try to have sessions that that are engaging and uh and eye-opening and and so you're at the chicago conference i had a i had a virtual reality demonstration (laughs) <laughs> project at, at I guess it's Friday of the conference and stuff like that. So, but yeah, it's it's about creating something that that provides value and and always being cognizant of why people attend these things. Are they able to derive a value? But but yeah, certainly as Bruce mentioned, the the the, the PR cu- sort of communications game and that uh, just a different 
generation, and I'd consider both of you in this uh, kind of uh, of the tech savvy, somewhat promotional, um, but managing he- your heavy promotional. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, managing your digital online presence, and in some respects, uh, driving your career based on the networks and uh, not only in person networks, but by by building a larger digital presence that you know means everything from greater impact of research to more opportunities that come your way for all sorts of things. So mm-hmm. I would say one thing, um, when I started off the conference, um, just to show you kind of how much even impact has, has defined my career. The first person I called the, uh, when I started impact is that I tried the, tr- you know, first try the traditional shoe leather approach, uh, phone calls and stuff like that. The first person I called was Barbara Liggett at Western Michigan. And little did I know three years later, she would be my boss. Um, <laughs> so and the second person I called was, um, I be- when Bruce, when you were at uh, IU South Bend, I called your department and I got referred to you. So you were actually the second person I talked to. So just to <laughs> just to know how much, just in the the first two, the even the very opening stages of of impact, just the first two people I literally talked to on the phone, both had sort of important kind of co- uh, I wouldn't say consequences. That that seems, sounds ominous. Uh, implication yeah they had uh hey, people know. judge you by our friendship i'll tell you now <laughs> yeah but very positive kind of uh uh changes to my career that i, I had not foreseen at that point and uh and uh yeah I, I you know you put yourself out there uh people like to see see it when you you know somebody who's got energy and is willing to create and stuff like that but also i think it also speaks to especially for uh for you bruce and i just give you a little shout out is that uh is something I've always said about Impact is that uh, that neither Impact JPNA or really anything in in this field would operate without the, the the strong public service ethic of the people in the field that are people are willing to do things without pay without uh, sometimes you know uh, very open or direct acknowledgement and I and you got to really try to to get some stuff out there but. Um, yeah, it's just it really speaks to the field that I've never said I've never had people really say no to me when I ask them. It's like here's a great thing, here's how we can do it. Will you help? And they say yes, and and it's been tremendous having having such a supportive field because I, I don't think that's indicative of a lot of of the ways that academics work. Oh, yeah. What a great message for students, right? You can pick up the phone or you can send an email and ask big names for help and a lot of the time they will be really interested in helping. Yeah. I didn't know that when I started and it, you know, it seems silly now, like, Oh, you could talk to people and they might help you. But I, I didn't know that. Uh, or I didn't, I didn't know it was appropriate even that if I felt really strongly about something or wanted to ask a question about someone's data or how they came up with that idea that I could just do that. I was always cognizant of that, you know, especially coming from the military of, of, you know, idea of hierarchy and, and approach and stuff like that. But it's like, um, that I always treat people with respect and refer to them to as doctor such and such or professor such and such. And you've got to keep that kind of decorum about you. But, um, but yeah, other than that, people seem very open towards helping you out, you know, irrespective of, of where your place on the totem pole is. And, uh, and yeah, that that if you're going to do something big or innovative, and you want to pull people in, that uh, make sure that your idea your ideas developed out, and that there's um, 
uh, yeah, that that you're not wasting people's time. But other than that, you know, don't be afraid to uh, approach big names in the field. But that being said, don't always go straight to the top either. That that sometimes you you've got some people that you need to engage lower than that. You know, just trying to go from a top down approach or something like that is not necessarily the the best way to go. So so know that there's people in between, and don't always just look towards getting like an Eleanor Ostrom type figure on your, your, your thing that that might not happen. <laughs> so the three of us have something in common. We've all lived in North Carolina at some point in time. So we have to ask, has North Carolina shaped your, how has North Carolina, if at all shaped your view of public administration, uh, your interest, your ethos, any of those things? Uh, I guess um, growing up in North Carolina, uh, I grew up in several places, but North Carolina was the longest. I'd say that North Carolina was always known um, in in the past, I'd say pre-2010, as being sort of the 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 progressive state within a, a much more sort of conservative, uh, you know, surrounded by South Carolina and Tennessee and Georgia and even to an extent most of Virginia outside of North, uh, Nova. Um, that always had a very progressive, you know, with the UNC School of Government and uh, Terry Sanford Institute, and of course my alma mater at NC State. Uh, that there's this kind of hub of public service activity, and that uh, was kind of anchored in in the triangle. And it was a, it was a great experience getting to struggle, uh, getting to uh, study. I was going to say to struggle, uh, to struggle, uh, to study in the triangle. <laughs> It's a struggle, man. It's fine. Yeah, just it just flows. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. I think it was it was a great experience to to see kind of that balance. Um, and I mean, North Carolina was famously known for having um, very he- heavily subsidizing higher education. You know, much more than other states around it. So, so access to all these things uh, that you know, while still being a conservative state, it was still kind of an innovator on. Uh, number of things, you know, environmental, coastal regulation, and and other things like that. So I, I think it was it was part informed by that uh, the experience of living in that state, and then just with organizations. Uh, I say particularly, I was in the I was in the Boy Scouts growing up. Uh, I was actually even a, an Eagle Scout, but uh, I think a lot of my, I guess, experience with uh, civic life and 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 introduction to government was kind of filtered through this aspect of. Uh, we had merit badges, and one was called God and Country, and God and the Nation, and God in the Community. Having a, a sort of family history of uh, academics and uh, public servants, it kind of meshed well, and everything like that. So I think that that uh, it's as much living place and the sort of prevailing culture of a place, but also the the formative institutions and the the educational experiences is that you have, especially in, in sort of your K through twelve period, that can help provide that sort of strong love of public service and public service motivation. Well, one of the things I think I find interesting about North Carolina that I haven't seen anywhere else I've lived is the city of Raleigh and a lot of the state agencies are kind of more willing to engage with academics and people in the community. So they have lots of data and they're saying, you know, tell us what data you want uh, to use and analyze and you know, we'll give it to you. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think, um, that's something I saw to much more extent, and I, I think I appreciate it. Having my undergrad was actually I was an urban and regional planning and geography major, and the extent to which we relied on publicly available data 
not only for for GIS but for other sort of projects and stuff like that. Um, seemed pretty normal to me at the time, but it wasn't until I really started going to other states did I really understand. It's like, all right, how easy you know how open data was and how available these these type of things were. So uh, yeah, so definitely there's some uh, having institutions like UNC, NC State, um, particularly that had those data repositories and made those things available definitely changed the sort of educational experience for a lot of us um, at, at other institutions. Now, did that kind of come back and influence you know, what you were thinking when you started Impact and then creating JPNA? Because they both have very much a practitioner bent that it seems to be absent in other academic conferences in the field. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if I can tie it to, to North Carolina directly. I'd definitely say NC State in its culture of innovation was a big part of that, just just being around all these people who were doing things and developing things out. I think my desire to start JPNA and uh, Impact were both kind of oriented towards I just found that the structures of these things were sort of exclusionary and I think the thing about the the culture of innovation is that um you just see different th- things, different ways of doing the same thing. And I don't know, I felt journals were very, like, I don't like the idea of paywalls, exclusivid- exclusivity, um, going to conferences that have $1,000 registration fees. Uh, and uh, I guess my my singular focus is to look at what is the purpose of the thing we're trying to do and is that being accomplished and then trying to strip away the sort of extraneous things around that. And then with JPNA, I found it's like, all right, do we really need to pay tens of thousand dollars to, re- you know, to register a journal and to have it go through a publisher and then it, for it to be paywalled off where most people can't even uh, access it and stuff like that. It's like, we're, we're, in a, we're in a digital age of publishing. It's like that information has never been easier to get and freer that we're stuck to an old model and the incentives are stuck to the old model. And it's, it's having sort of negative effects on society as good information is paywalled and, and the kind of, stuff we see on social media and the fake news and everything like that is free that we're losing, you know, the information war and, and sort of the ability to have important discussions in society. So, so yeah, if we, if we are going to create a journal, we need to make it open access. We need to make it good and we need to just uh, provide that actual mechanism to, to provide, to provide overlap between uh, the the academic and practitioner community, which uh, a gulf that continues to widen instead of uh, growing closer. If, that's my thought about that. So. <laughs> I think it's an amazing point. And I, you have to wonder, we all get into this field because we want to provide information that does what? get shared with other people or gets get shared with each other or gets shared outside of the community and is used in practice. Why why not find ways to share it better? Yeah, and I think some of my the the formative kind of formative issues that I had with publishing is that I remember as a doc student submitting things to journals and you know, I'd write something that the data was a year, you know, a couple years old. Some, in some cases with publicly available data. And then I would um, I would, I would send it off to a publication and then it would go through reviews and you know, they get accepted or rejected. And um, 
but then you eventually get something published and you're looking at the time frame and it's often like two, two and a half years. And I'm just like, we're in a short form world where digital tools are allowing people to do research and get that stuff out. And, and we don't find these problems in chemistry and biology and the journal, you know, and, and medical journals and, and the hard sciences and stuff like that. You know, these things that have a market analog, the time to publication is fairly quick and there are direct implications for society and for industry and whatnot. And I just, I just found the idea of this long publishing time horizon and, and uh, you know, not to say, you know, you know, review is going to take time and, and that's certainly important, but the, the administrative side of running journals was is detracting away from the the the, the social impact, and uh, I th- I think that's something that that really the field um, in general, but also academia needs to, to to be more cognizant of is that maybe we need more short form uh, publishing. You know that it, we need rigorous review, but we need it to to occur quickly, and we need to to help grab some of the narrative back from alternative media sources that that seek to define us and seek to facilitate the you know our end or at least our displacement if you will love it if you so if a student student coming up right now were to ask you what should they do where should they spend their time right we know that there are trade-offs between time spent on traditional academic work and maybe time spent on what could be the new academic work but is not quite right yet what would you say i got I, I, a little bit tortured uh, about some of this um because i think i'm a lot tortured yeah <laughs> yeah I would say I've been kind of tortured about this, and and as Josie said that she had been as well. Um, that uh, you know, for somebody, I started off as a tenure track professor and got basically a year away from me submitting my 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 tenure packet, and then decided to take a non year non tenure track job. Um, I think for me, uh, advice I would give to students is that do what you're going to do to make you happy. And that should be your first goal. Like a lot of people in this field say, you know, my, my goal is tenure. And it's like my, it was until I I was honest with myself and it's like, my goal is a happy life and a place where I feel productive. And (laughs) yeah. And, um, uh, I say that, uh, you know, a lot of places I was at before and stuff like that. It's like, I, I, I like the people there and I like the job and stuff like that. But, but, in the end, it's like you got to be honest with yourself and and see what is it you want to get out of, what is it you want to get out of your career and and where do you aspirationally see yourself? And you know, my advice to you is that you know, especially with the rise of you know non tenure track kind of positions or administrative track and stuff like that, is that the tenure track isn't the only way forward. And for those of you who want to, who enjoy direct engagement and enjoy service that the tenure track is probably not going to be the place for you because the incentives aren't there. If you do want to go down the professor route, that research is primarily always going to be what's going to be what's valued on just on, on pretty much any market. 
you know, even at teaching institutions. So I say like, you know, make sure you, you burnish your, your research chops and you get prepared for that and stuff like that. But, but that being said, if you want to be at a, at a, a, a teaching institution or other things like that, you know, you're going to have to find uh, ex- places where you can get that experience and develop out your, your pedagogy and whatnot. Cause it's, it's very competitive out there. So uh, I'd say that sooner rather than later, be honest with yourself in, in that, do you have a geographic present preference? Do you want to be near family? Do you want to do all these things? And and that's kind of uh, my advice is to, to be just be honest with yourself and what you want, and see whether or not the incentive streams of what you are pursuing is is aligned with that. I think that's kind of interesting. You know, in academia, we do push the holy grail of tenure. You know, if you're getting your PhD, you should be going after a tenure track job. And if you're not doing that, then obviously there's something wrong with you, which you know, I disagree with, and I've you know gotten into conversations with a couple of my you know, colleagues here at NC State who were going through the tenure process. When I was going through it, a couple of them commented that I was you know fairly calm, and I was like, "Well, why should I not be calm?" Like, "Well, what happens if you don't get tenure?" And it's like, "I'll just go do something else," and it was unfathomable to them that I would be that kind of blasé about it. More than blasé, that's revolutionary thinking in our field. I mean, it's that's not common at all. And so I say that only to remind people that it's a great attitude to have. Everyone should have that attitude, but that is not the prevailing attitude. And you might even get in trouble for acting blase. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Makes this conversation interesting because in part, because Josie, you walked away from a tenure track job as well to run your center. I absolutely did. And I think I, I feel completely settled in the decision now, but I thought probably, and I don't know that anybody said to me, well, that's crazy, you can't do that. But I, I felt the stares of people who might possibly think that I am doing something atypical. And that's why I'm so excited too to talk to Stephen in this conversation, because I've, I feel among like-minded people, but I, I think when we're at a traditional conference, I don't. Or and I mean I took this six months ago so I haven't I haven't really tested it out yet but uh, yeah and I am excited to share that story that I feel great about this decision and it is the right decision for me and it is giving me more opportunity to do the parts of academic work that I connect with most but I think it is still not not the norm by any means. Yeah. And I think, I think, um, I see this and, and, and this is something that even typified our experience at UIC and part of the discussions when I took this job is that, that they were, they're really looking for builders. And I see this kind of idea of new, like almost a new academic class emerging that people, you know, know, generally some, you know, a lot of staff, administrative staff don't know much about the field or broader trends in research in the field of public administration and faculty don't always have the 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 skills to be able to run uh you know or the, either the interest or skills to to run centers and especially in small departments they just get kind of saddled with uh uh some responsibilities and when you know this isn't the 80s where the state was paying 95% of your you know your 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 bills and stuff like that it's like we got to recruit we got to improve the student experience we've got to evaluate we've got to do all these things that haven't necessarily been skills that administrators have done particularly well and i think 
what you're seeing kind of the rise of, of, you know, and as much as people say, oh, the contingent faculty or the non-tenure track faculty and stuff like that is that what we're really looking for is the emergence of a, of a, a class of builders that people who can, who can recruit and do engagement and run social media accounts and, uh, and be able to, to essentially, I think the term is like a polymath, uh, but like to be an expert in both kind of practitioner and uh, academic affairs. And then to use that, because I, I think that uh, we're, we're losing, you know, as the gulf has widened, that there has become this inner space that is needed for a particular type of faculty member who is, is, is focused on doing things, but, but still has the academic chops to be able to, to, to operate between those spaces. So, you know, the world has changed dramatically, especially the last 10 years in terms of, you know, where academia fits. So I don't think you're doing the things the same way necessarily gets us anywhere anymore. Absolutely. How could we possibly try to operate in the same systems when everything is so different and there's so much more opportunity? Yeah. So, yeah, I believe, I believe in that completely is that, that, um, that as, uh, as society has evolved, that academia needs to evolve along with it. And, and, and particularly for you, those students out there who are like, oh, well, what is this wonderful kind of middle ground that you're talking about? Like, I tell you that, it, you know, if you want tenure because of job security, that a lot of these positions are, you either have multi-year contracts or you're, you're also, you know, a member of a union and stuff like that. It's like, um, you know, in some some cases, you're probably more secure <laughs> being the non-tenure track faculty member. The, the, the middle ground is kind of where I, I, I've seen some growth and I've met more people kind of like what that who are doing the type of things I do now. As as uh, as programs have seen this kind of need is like all right we we you know we've gone through eight or nine different people trying to do this particular thing and they can't do it well let's hire somebody directly who can who can focus on this and then and I think um, even more so it really adds in the sorting of people that I think one of the big things and one of the big stressors for a lot of those in academia is that if you're going to take a tenure track job you're going to have to take it where the job is and that that sometimes is uh you know sometimes you luck out and you can find a place close to home or you can find close to the family or if you have a geographic present uh, preference but a lot of people end up not uh in er- <laughs> not in areas that that were particularly their first choice you know that they they sometimes move there and they come to love them but i think there's something to be said about you know in a lot of professions that people have geographic preferences and you know that they have places they want to work and i think that it creates a lot of stress on the lives of of others or or people in the field that sometimes uh that they have to go places that they don't particularly want to go and i think that helping to provide this 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 big sort and 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 helping to, to match people towards places with opportunities and lifestyles and amenities makes for a happier field and a more productive field. So, you know, I, I, I'm anything for that. You know, you went to Fort Wayne, you know, and I went to South Bend and you know, it was a great experience. You know, being in South Bend is definitely not a place I really wanted to go to. You know, I've, I've, I've moved on from Fort Wayne and it's like, I, you know, I love being here in, you know, being here in Chicago. I loved Kalamazoo and that was a very, that was hard for me to move on from Kalamazoo. I really loved the, the town. I really loved the people. Uh, but I had kind of big city uh, dreams and stuff like that. But but uh, but yeah, I mean, there are going to be institutions that are rural or 
are remote or far out and stuff like that. And, uh, and yeah, they're definitely going to need people out there, but I've always found that there's, there's definitely people who having been on search committees, there's people with great credentials that, that would love to work there and they would be happier and they would be stable and, you know, you know, it reduced turnover and stuff like that. But we as in a field are kind of, we're not really amenable to that. And um, I hope that if if non-tenure track faculty is the way to go, that you can, that if you're from a particular area or, you know, maybe maybe you're, 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 you have married or have a small child and you need some help with your family to take care of them and stuff like that, a lot of those things are very important considerations to people. And, and in summary, that's why I started Impact. Uh, just kind of bring it right now. Just kidding. <laughs> Right, so MPAC is going to be good for babysitting your kids. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of going forward, what do you see the future of MPAC being? But you know, you've also moved kind of back in your role a little bit to hand it off to Mike Ford. Uh, so, what's also next for you? So, what what's next with MPAC is like I I, I definitely think of MPAC as you know that the conference and obviously the journal will continue. But I do uh, have thought about different offshoots of using this organizational capacity and networks that we have towards building something else. Um, and um, one of the things I've kind of discussed with people kind of knocking around stage, and I've actually, I think I actually discussed it in my president's address like a year or two ago was um, I wanted to borrow an idea that I learned from like a wildlife biology department is that turns out that some, in some fields, particularly the, the, the physical sciences that, having like an unconference where a bunch of people will get out together and take over like a state park or or a large campground and then have kind of I was going to call it conversations by the lake or something to that effect where you know that we we mix that social and, and academic element you know we don't have of course no powerpoints but have the deep discussion circles have guided facilitated discussion but kind of a deeper experience than you can even get with a, with a conference. So going camping with impact, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe in a cabin or a yurt or something like that, if you're not a big tent type person, but uh, that's something that I've had in my mind for a while that just to, to as an experiment to see how it goes and uh, it's being done in other fields and, you know, just taking sort of a creative risk um, on that. But you know, perhaps greater inter- integration in my role as the As in the Aspen National Conference uh, on the Aspen National Council to promote better integration of of the Aspen Regional Conferences into the wider organization. And I guess, yeah, personally myself, I'm getting I'm getting promoted to associate, and uh, starting in in the fall, I'll be a, a clinical associate professor at at UIC and stuff like that. So I, I see myself being here for you know, quite a bit of time and uh, just kind of working on building, mentioned kind of passing, working on a civic uh, civic analytics and data science degrees in, in public affairs. Uh, I think that's something that uh, we're starting to see inklings of in that NASPA conferences and, and in discussion, but I think that you're starting to also see the rise of a new type of public service degree that's uh, even more data at, data and technology enabled kind of capacities that then you would find in an MPP or something similar to that. So, uh, so yeah, I guess for me trying to continue to create, uh, as, as I see fit, but also kind of being on the intersection of technology and public service is, uh, is where I see myself in the future. Huh. Awesome. Thanks, Steven. This has been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate it. 
Well, I, yeah, I appreciate it. 